BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Bold. That's truly the first word that comes to mind when I think about Hong Kong-based Audra Gordon. I mean, you have to be to take your banking career to Asia after reaching out to a complete stranger on LinkedIn. Or to decide to do an overland travel trip across West Africa with a rough idea of where you could go depending on your personal network. Or to leave your comfy banking job, go to grad school, launch a fashion brand, and then maintain it during a pandemic with all its challenges. You definitely have to be a bit bold and audacious, and that just might describe Audra to a T. Her early years were spent in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, where she was raised, before she joined her parents in New York, where they had already immigrated. And her career would take her to Europe, Africa, and Asia. But as you listen to her story unfold, you'll hear the impact about how those early years, especially living in the Caribbean with her grandmother, would influence Beam Bold, her fashion brand. You will hear how a trip to Morocco would begin a love affair with the African continent and be a key part of her business's social mission, which has a focus on both sustainability and size inclusion. But you'll also hear the story of a woman who is wholly inquisitive and unafraid to pursue the interests and things she values. Audra's strength is in her ability to connect with people and cultures. She has an exciting aura that is warm, bright, and effortless, much like the clothing she designs. Audra definitely radiates, and that becomes quite evident early on in this episode of The Global Chatter. So I'm here with Audra Gordon, who so kindly is joining in from her part of the world. And if you guys are listening to this, we were just joking off air about how it's really early because I'm in the United States and I'm, I'm going to let her tell you where she is right now. But, <laughs> but Audra, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. <laughs> and for those of you who probably haven't read the show notes yet. She is based in Hong Kong, but you know, before we, we even get to how she got to Hong Kong, I'm excited for her to tell a little bit about her story. And so Audra, I, I asked this question of everyone who comes on. Mm -hmm. So tell me a little bit about your background, where you grew up, how you grew up. 
Absolutely. So I was born in the Caribbean islands of St. Vincent and the Grenadines. Uh, so I grew up there um, and then I moved to New York when I was 13. So I spent most of my formidable years in Brooklyn, New York. And then in 2011, I moved to Hong Kong and had a short stint in London and short stint in Ghana and traveled quite a bit around the African continent as well, but found my way back to Hong Kong and I've been here for the last 10 years. So I, you know, and I've talked to you before, I didn't realize that you were in the Caribbean until you were a preteen. So yeah, tell me about that experience. What was your childhood like and how did it, how did it really change when you moved to the U.S.? Yeah, so I grew up with my grand, my grandmother and my, my aunts. My parents had migrated to the U.S. when I was five and six. Uh, so one uh, moved a year after that my, my mom moved first. And then my grandmother and my aunts raised us. And I remember back then, um, you know, looking at the planes and, you know, thinking about reconnecting with my mom. Like when I see like the planes that will, you know, uh, travel overhead, that was my connection with travel. Like I felt like reconnecting with my parents was that thing that because I hadn't seen them for five years until I came to the U.S. on holiday when I was 10 and then moved when I was 13. So, you know, growing up in the Caribbean, we lived right, right next to the beach. So, you know, it was just fun. I have, you know, two sisters and a cousin. So the four of us grew up together, just, you know, having a normal childhood in the Caribbean, but my parents were in New York at that time. Very cool. Yeah. And I, you know, interestingly enough, I think that's kind of a common story, not just mm -hmm. for kids from the Caribbean, but I know many people know that I grew up in sub-Saharan Africa, and so that was common as well, is that mm -hmm. parents or guardians would get an opportunity somewhere. <laughs> and then, of course, immigration process and everything else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So there's, a, there's a delay. Wow. Okay. So then you moved to the U.S. at 13, and I, I swear, I asked this of all third culture kids, right? So kids right. who've grown up in more than one culture. Like, mm -hmm. what was the shift for you? And I know you'd visited the States, obviously, but what was the shift from going... I mean, you were in an in the islands, Correct. beach culture, warmth, you know, all predominantly black and brown folks, right? What was mm -hmm. it like then moving to Brooklyn? Yeah, so Brooklyn was interesting because when I first moved to Brooklyn, I was in Flatbush. So, you know, it's a little Caribbean. So we were in a Caribbean neighborhood. And so we got to connect with, you know, other kids from the Caribbean as well, like, you know, going to school, uh, you know, with mostly Caribbean kids. So, but it was definitely different, like, you know, growing up in the Caribbean and, you know, just being in part of the community, like now you're in this big world in the U.S. and you you felt like a bit alone. You had to kind of adjust to the culture and even school was totally different than, you know, back, back, back home. So it was quite a bit of a shift, but it, I felt a bit isolated initially because I felt like it was just a different world that I was used to and I had to get adjusted to life in the U.S. initially. Uh, but eventually I felt like it was it was definitely home in Brooklyn because um, I had so many Caribbean people, the food, the, the, the um, parties, you know, <laughs> just the Caribbean culture was definitely infused in, 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 in Brooklyn, in, in Flatbush, where I, I started off. So I kind of have two follow-up questions with that. Obviously, you came over. Did, were you still going back and forth to the Caribbean? Did you, were you able to still go visit family? No. Or that just sort of stopped. No, initially when we moved in uh, twenty, um, in well, we moved in ninety three. We I only went back I think once or twice. Um, you know, in my early early stages, like we we traveled to to Toronto. Uh, you know, so I think we went to Canada twice because we had family there. But in terms of going back to the Caribbean, we didn't really go back um, often. I think in my teenage years, I remember going back twice, uh, you know, and then I went back obviously as an adult, but yeah, we didn't, we definitely didn't go back at all. 
yeah. And then even within, of course, growing up in New York, then I'm obviously Caribbean is an expansive term. Yes. <laughs> Did you, were there, were there other families like, so I wonder because within that, that can include, of course, like Bahamians, mm-hmm. it can include Antiguans, Trini folks. Yeah. And so I'm curious, were you still able to find folks from St. Vincent and the Grenadines or was it, okay, we're all, you know, it's like, we're all regionally right. from somewhere and that was the community. And and I'm not saying that there aren't, there are differences, right? Because these are right. different countries. Absolutely. But we're, yeah. My earlier friends, like friends who I went, well, I, I, when I arrived in the U.S., I was in the eighth grade and then I went into high school. So some of my friends I've had from high school are still my friends to this day. And quite a few of them are from Trinidad, um, Guyana. I had a friend from St. Vincent later on in life and some friends who I knew back home who had also migrated to the U.S. But um, yeah, my friends were from so many different islands and we just met at school and we connected and, you know, we went to, you know, different parties and, you know, we just did different things together. Um, but yeah, there were definitely a diverse group of friends from all, a lot of the different islands. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the question I always, I always find is that, all right, You've kind of, you've grown up in this community, diverse community, and then the time comes typically where people figure out, all right, I'm 18. What Mm -hmm. am I going to do with my life, right? (laughs) And as someone who spends most of her days working with people trying to figure out that question, (laughs) what did you decide to do at 18? Did you go to college? Did you decide to travel? What was your plan? So I started working uh, when I was 16 years old. I started working in retail. So I worked for a few clothing brands like Kenneth Cole, Express, Ara Pastel. So that's what I did. Like, you know, while I was studying, I, I also work um, simultaneously. Uh, so I had an interest in fashion since then. My grandmother was, was a seamstress. So I grew up in the Caribbean with her sewing for the entire community. So I love fashion. I love clothing. And that's initially where my interest was. But then, you know, everyone makes you feel like this is not a real career. You need to do something mm. serious, right? You need to be a banker, lawyer, doctor. Like fashion is not a real career. Like you do not you sound like the immig- that. <laughs> you sound like every immigrant family parent, right? It's like Absolutely. lawyer. Everyone that comes on here is like lawyer, engineer, doctor, <laughs> maybe an accountant, something in finance. Yeah, that's it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. But I also think we just had limited exposure to careers in fashion, right? And again, the mm-hmm. arts weren't, you know, I think now more so you have a bit more support around the arts, but back then, definitely, like, you need to do something serious. Like, this is a joke, you know? <laughs> so yeah. that's what made me um, decide. I, I studied um, business management and finance with my undergrad, and uh, I started off as a teller in banking and worked my way up to VP mm-hmm. level within a few years in banking, uh, while still working in, in, you know, in fashion and on the weekends. Like, I still worked for a few clothing stores on the weekends while I, I was in banking uh, full-time. So it's quite interesting, you know, making the switch, wow. but um, yeah. <laughs> Wow. And so, wow. And I, and I know that that's part of the reason that took you to Hong Kong, right? Is because you obviously, and you know, anyone who knows anything about sort of business and on an international scale and looks at that part of the world, that's a hub, right? Um, Is that what, what kind of led to you though, being able to going to Hong Kong? Were you, were you just working up in your career and the opportunity came or were you working and you thought to yourself, I want to kind of step out of being in New York. And I know that there's some stops in the way. What what was the thing that kind of led you kind of leaving the U.S. to, to continue with your career? Okay, so I um, began traveling globally. 
Um, and I was working for an international bank. You know, we were in 86 countries. I had clients everywhere. So I became a proper nomad, you know, from a early age, like my early 20s, I started traveling quite a bit. Like every, you know, December, I'll take a month off because most of my clients were away. I'll travel, you know, with Europe, South America. I just started traveling to a lot of the Caribbean islands as well. And then um, I thought, you know, it was time for me to have an international career. I thought London would be, um, you know, a good next step because the bank's headquarters were in London. And I thought, okay, there's no language barrier. I never considered Hong Kong. And then I reached out to this guy on LinkedIn. He was a Black American working in Hong Kong and I saw his profile we had also done the same you know management training program we had a lot of colleagues in common but we had never met each other in person and I sent him a message on LinkedIn and I said oh I would love to chat with you about how you transitioned from HSBC New York to Hong Kong and uh, he said oh you're in luck I'm in New York for two weeks let's meet up and we didn't have a chance to meet in person, but we had we chatted on the phone and all the preconceived notions about language, culture. He said, you'll be totally fine. Everyone speak English. And I felt like, oh, if he's a black American in Hong Kong and he, he's done it, I can do it too. Right. So that inspired mm. me. I went online <laughs> and I saw a role to lead the international team, to manage the international team in the head office here. And I applied for the job, had one phone interview and I was offered the opportunity to move to Hong Kong. See, I feel like you are, so this is really funny. I feel like you are a walking advertisement for LinkedIn. So yesterday I was on, I was on Twitter, which has nothing to do with anything, but I was on Twitter Uh and people like, some folks were complaining about how LinkedIn isn't necessarily useful. And as someone who uses it quite a bit, I'm like, it can, if you know how to use it, but it's, it's like social media. It's not for everyone. But the exactly. fact that you actually did the thing <laughs> yes. that I tell clients to do, which yeah. is actually reach out to people and have a conversation, like forget all the other noise is really yes. <laughs> I reach out to uh, random strangers daily. This is what I do. This is my me thing. Me <laughs> too. That's, I mean, and here's the thing, and this is not, I'm not poo-pooing on anyone who doesn't want to use LinkedIn. I mean, it's the same uh-huh. thing you do on Twitter. It's the right. same thing on how we got connected on Instagram. Right. It's just find the social medium to, to network. And, and I think you said something really, really important is the fact that you saw someone who, I mean, obviously you didn't know this man. But right. you saw that his 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 training and also as as a black man, right, mm-hmm. was in a space where maybe you could be in and, and, and actually reached out. Because I think for for many of us, and I think this is for a lot of people, if you don't see people who are in kind of share your identities, you don't really know if you could do something. But you were just like, yeah, I'm just going to reach out to him. So I think Absolutely. that's why. You, well, you mentioned the travel. And yes. I know, I know that you are an extensive traveler that you've been to probably, I guess at this point, almost 80 countries. Mm-hmm. Um, now, early on, obviously you said as a, as a family, you didn't necessarily go back to the Caribbean, but you did do like you traveled to Canada, which is international. It doesn't matter. Right. That's on the other side of New York. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. I mean, to, you know, it's, it's, it's international. You need a passport and or ID or something. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> what, but what, what was it that really piqued your interest in travel? Because I know that that's a common thread through kind of everything we're talking about. What, where was that point where you were like, I want to see the world and, and what, what kind of led you to sort of making all these journeys? 
Right. So I just love, you know, experiencing different culture. Um, I'm a connector. I'm a people person. So just traveling to, you know, new places and getting an opportunity to speak to people, understanding their journey, that was something that I found fulfilling. So as I started traveling and having these experiences, I realized, oh, I really enjoyed this. I now started mapping out, you know, where else in the world I would like to go. And then I definitely mm-hmm. think, you know, working for an international bank that was in so many countries, even clients I didn't meet in person. Like I had conversations with them and I built relationships with them. So even like when I went to South America, I met with one of my clients. He was a British guy who was living in Argentina, set up a tango school. And again, so I had never met him in person, but he embraced me and said, oh, I said, I'm coming to Argentina. He said, oh, let's meet up. And he took me around. So again, I felt a bit comfortable. Like I did a lot of solo travel, but I felt comfortable having contacts or even, you know, people, like I said, I haven't met but at least I had some sort of contacts or people who had been to these countries. And, you know, so that inspired me. Like I was looking at um, one of my clients who um, when I was talking about my first trip to Africa was to Morocco. And one of my clients, obviously working in banking, clients had to you know notify, notify us of where they're traveling. So just so that cards don't get blocked and all of that stuff. Right. Mm-hmm. And I remember one particular client, she was retired and she traveled a lot. And every time she's leaving, she will come and she'll write a note of all the countries she's going to. And one of the first, places she had gone to was Morocco and her experience there inspired me to start traveling on the continent and then like I said the rest was history I really enjoy the people just getting immersed in the culture I just truly enjoy you know exploring so (laughs) so two really good things coming out of that the first that I'm curious is obviously as a banker you got to connect with all these people in different cross-cultural spaces what was that like just as a black woman in international banking, right? In, yes. in the role that you were in yes, and the clientele, how was that professionally? Right. So I manage high net worth clients uh, initially in New York, and then I led the team in Hong Kong. Uh, so these were high net worth clients who traveled, you know, globally and shared their experiences with me. Right. So these conversations, you build those relationships and you share their journey about where they're from, whether they had become expats as well in the U.S. Uh, because where I was in Manhattan in the meatpacking district, like I had, you know, Google, we had a lot of the fashion you know, companies were right in, you know, in, in, in the um, area. And, you know, so I got to meet so many expats and learn about their journey and, you know, their, um, you know, experience moving to the U.S. or their travels. And that really inspired me. And I think that definitely, you know, helped in terms of, you know, giving me a bit more, giving me a bit more um, uh, conviction that this is what I wanted to do. Yeah, I mean, that's the and I and I gathered, especially with the conversations you were having with clients that I was like, okay, she's probably working with more high (laughs) or higher (laughs) net worth. Not not that you couldn't with middle income or or low, you know what I mean? But I mean, if if, if they're regularly traveling, we know that there is a there is a financial commitment to that for those of us who traveled, right? That and if they're talking to their banker, I mean, I and I was just laughing to myself because as someone who every other moment my cards would stop working (laughs) in places and I'm just like calling. I'm like, I told y'all I was going to be in what you forgot, you know, Um, I get it. But I think that that's really interesting exposure that you got Mm -hmm. in terms Mm -hmm. of being able to tie sort of that growing interest in travel and, and really having a career internationally. Right. Because once again, I don't think we get, we don't get taught that unless we're around someone who's who's done it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, (laughs) And and so you mentioned that Morocco, I know Morocco 
was the first place you went to the continent. And, you know, when we say the continent here, we're yes. like Africa. Uh, yes. <laughs> and we know that people might be like, Europe? No. <laughs> but <laughs> if I say the continent, right. we're talking about Africa. But, yes. <laughs> but I know that that trip, it seems, just sort of started your, I don't want to call it a love affair, but really your your commitment and your intentionality um, to that space. And so... Morocco is the first place you decided to go. What was your experiences in Morocco and and how did that lead to other experiences in Africa? Right. So Morocco, as I mentioned, I, I visited Morocco in spring of 2010. And um, that was a totally different experience than the rest of my travels across the continent. Now I've done 26 countries in Africa, so almost half of the continent. And I am obsessed. I, I can say that. <laughs> I'm truly obsessed with the continent. I am in love with it. I'm passionate about the continent. And so that first trip was a bit um, different in that I did an organized, um, I joined an organized tour and I had, I convinced one of my girlfriends. I said, oh, um, I really want to go to Morocco. Would you join me? Because at that point, your perception of Africa is, oh, I didn't want to go by myself. I will love a friend to, to join me. And it became this luxury experience. One, I guess we had some sort of a because of the currency difference or something like that, which we weren't expecting. So we stayed at like five-star hotels. We had these experiences going between like a few cities in, in Morocco. And again, we were a bit removed from the local community. And that was a different experience for me versus the rest of my travels across the continent, right? So I love Morocco. It was a beautiful country. I got lost in, in, in the markets there, lots of colorful, you know, you know, fabric and all these different things that you were able to bring back. So I really love Morocco. And one of the highlights for that trip, I met a guy on the plane and he took us around um, uh, so we, we left the, the, the group and then we, we joined this guy who was sitting next to me on the plane. And, you know, he definitely showed me his city. We did, a you know, a tour on the water, like, you know, the different things that were part of the trip. And that was exciting for me. And that's one of the, the, um, the points where I realized, like, having an immersive experience with a local, I think I will enjoy more than this isolation of just being with other other tourists and, you know, just having this luxury experience. And I realized when I were, when I uh, returned to the continent that I wanted to have a totally different experience. So when I came back in 2012, I did six weeks in East Africa from Kenya, Tanzania, Malawi, Zambia, Zimbabwe, South Africa. And that I did an overland truck. So I'd met someone in Hong Kong who told me about overlanding in Africa because I'd never heard of it. And there are these mm -hmm. trucks that, you know, you join, you know, lots of people from around the world. You can hop on, hop off at different um, spots. Some places you sleep in tents. You know, if you wanted a more luxury experience, you could. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know what overlanding is. Yes. Okay, so let me let me not let me not interrupt your wonderful story, but yes, let me just no. say you said Ted. Anybody yes. who knows me, okay, and I, I have a friend who's probably dying right now. Anyone who knows me, let's talk about camping for a very yes. small second. I hate camping. Now, this is why this is really this is why this is entertaining. I have been a camp counselor. Really? And I have camped on three continents. I have more camping equipment than you think I should have. I've got a tent currently in right. the Middle East right now I need to go get. Right. And I I have a sleeping bag. I have all the equipment. I hate camping. So really? when you said a tent. It. Yes. Oh, my God. 
I have done it. And I've told folks, they're like, oh, Amanda, you haven't done the right spot. I'm like, I've done it in Africa, Asia, and North America. I don't like camping. Really? I love it. Love. Girl, no, you said a (laughs) tech. Nope. Yeah. Nope, <laughs> nope, because yeah. my philosophy is so bad. Let me tell you, my, I swear, I say this all the time. I said, I am first generation American. Right. <laughs> I'm very fully aware of the villages my family comes from. Right. They did not immigrate for me right. <laughs> to camp, so I do not camp. I'm not no, mad I if you camp. You should totally let, do, do you. But as for me and myself, if there's not an RV involved, I, or a cabin, am not part of this. Anyway, continue with your lovely overland story. I just wanted to say that part. (laughs) No, I truly enjoyed it. I truly enjoyed it. Like even camping in in Tanzania outside of Serengeti, like at night we're hearing all of the animals and stuff. And everybody's like, I don't want to hear that. Because I watch National Geographic and I know I have been on a safari. Look, I have seen things run and I did not want it to be the thing that they're running towards. But anyway, yes, beautiful Serengeti. Carry on. Yeah, so so I spent six weeks. Actually, I wasn't even supposed to be there for six weeks. I ended up missing my flight in South Africa. I made up all type of holidays. I told my boss, I said, listen, there's some volunteer leave I think I qualify qualify for. I was making up all sort of leave to put together to make sure I had a long long holiday. So that trip, really, like I said, it was a totally different experience from that Morocco experience, right? And that's when that's when I felt like these are my people. I need to be here, right? So, so, so you you touch on something which is another thing that is <laughs> not about me, but yeah, you said something like, "Oh, you know, I, I'm I'm there with her." So I think I had a conversation with some previous guests. I'm thinking Rashida uh, mm-hmm. of She Did on the Loose, and and I remember saying, "Man, I don't think I can do group travel. Mm-hmm. Like I've done group travel before." And I, <laughs> I don't like I don't like it. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but but well, let me not say I don't like it. I think the older I get, the more I just and I've done a lot of solo travel. You know, you're I, I've said this on this on the show before. Your equivalent of East Africa, so all those countries you did, my mm-hmm. equivalent solo was like Brazil, Argentina, Uruguay, but a lot right. of you know those are. Those are big countries, right? Right. Except right. for really Uruguay. Mm-hmm. And so, um, and so it is hard, I think, to be on a trip <laughs> on a trip with folks, uh-huh. right? <laughs> Especially like, no, because I can imagine, right? So traveling with someone like you who really likes an immersive experience, right? right. If mm-hmm. I'm someone who really wants the full-on luxury resort experience, right. mm-hmm. sometimes it's hard to kind of meet in the middle. And yes. so, but but I can also appreciate it is nice yeah. to have the luxury experience that so because sometimes I don't know if you've ever had this experience right. have you ever like traveled and mm-hmm. I've done this where you've traveled hardcore by yourself and then one day you're just like I do want like mm-hmm. all the comforts just just right. of, of having stick yeah. me in a really nice hotel <laughs> and like room service I don't know if you've that I because I that's happened to me where I've traveled 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 and I've been like okay I need a day to recuperate let me right. go to this really nice hotel 
Right, right, right. No, but you know, the funny thing is most of my travels across Africa, like I stayed with local families. I realized, nice. again, I, I can stay, you know, at a luxury hotel by myself, but I think the experience of experiencing a country from a local perspective, I think that's like fulfilling for me. And so that's why I never like during this entire journey, like I said, I, I, I did six months and I traveled East uh, West Africa by road solo. And that was life-changing, like life-changing mm. where I took right. buses, I took taxis, I took motorbike with my suitcase on the back, you know, going from one country to the next. And that was life-changing. But every step along the way, I stayed with local families. I knew I had a large network in, in, in Africa, but I didn't realize how vast it was until I got there. And every single country I had a place to day you know so it was yeah <laughs> so I know so well here's what I'm curious with West Africa right, right. so like how how far across did you go like right. where did you go and then how did you obviously you had a network mm-hmm. but were there places where you didn't have as strong a network or how did you connect to be able to say all right hey, can I, I'm going to be in Dakar this week. Can I stay with right. you? <laughs> so I, like I said, I'm a connector. I keep in touch with people and not because I'm coming to your country. I literally reach out to my friends. I feel like, like I get, especially on the weekends, I, I t- touch base with my friends I just, all around the world, right? So even on the continent, I started thinking, okay, I'm pl- traveling through West Africa. Ghana had been a hub for me for a long time. So I have lots of friends in Ghana. So that was my base for the six month trip, right? So I arrived there, went to Togo by road, you know, over Christmas, came back to Ghana mm-hmm. for New Year's, then went um, west, um, you know, to Cote d'Ivoire. And then from there, I, I had my visa was expiring for, for Angola. So I had a break in my West African experience to fly because I had to fly through Morocco, through uh, to Angola. And then I did Namibia and Botswana as well, then came back through South Africa to Nigeria, and then continue back Ghana, um, and then I did um, a Sao Tome Principe. And then my I didn't get a visa in time for Liberia. So I flew from Ghana to Sierra Leone. So I missed Liberia and said, oh, I'll, I'll get there on my way back. But I traveled from Sierra Leone by road, covered the entire West Africa. So Sierra Leone, uh, went to Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, through the Casamance, um, you know, through Senegal, Gambia, uh, Dakar, did, um, you know, um, uh, Cape Verde, back Mauritania, even Mauritania, that wasn't part of my plan. One of my friends in Hong Kong, she wrote to me, she says, she, everyone, they see I'm traveling in Africa. And she said, oh, my mom is from um, from um, Mauritania. My dad's from Mali. My aunt's there. You can stay with my family. Like literally a random message. And I said, oh, is there a taxi that takes you there? And I looked, I saw there's a taxi from Dakar. I went to Mauritania. That wasn't part of the plan. You know, <laughs> came back, you know, went to Mali, from there to, you know, to um, through um, Togo again to Benin and came back to Ghana. So I missed, I didn't do Liberia and Niger, but I covered, yeah, most of West Africa, um, you know, in, in that trip. So, so again, wow. just connecting with local people and, you know, just understanding the culture from their perspective was really, really life-changing. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I love just that in that story, how a lot of people don't think about traveling through Africa that way. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, look, dark skin, single black woman, and you did mm-hmm. it. Yes. And you're here to tell the story. <laughs> and I think that that's what starts to dispel a lot of the myths around around the region. Absolutely. Really, I felt comfortable. I, I felt like everywhere I went, everyone kept saying, my sister, my sister. And I just felt like I was home. Like even in places like Sierra Leone, like a lot of their dialect, like I understood. And they said, oh, you understand what we're saying? And I said, yeah, it's similar to the dialect we have in the Caribbean. You know, Caribbean. so I totally yeah. understood, you know, so I felt at home. The food, you know, so 
a lot of the things that, you know, like the drinks, like the, the bisop that they, you know, sorrel that we call in the Caribbean, but the same type of food that we're eating, you know? So I really enjoyed my experience there. I totally enjoyed it. And then the fabric, that was another aspect of my, of that, um, uh, that, uh, that trip. Um, so I'll tell you a bit about that and, and how that got me to what I'm doing now and how I found my passion because of that journey through, through Africa. And so that's a perfect segue because we're going to take a break and then we're really going to talk about the brand that you've built as well as sort of the life you've built in in Hong Kong that kind of incorporates all these things (laughs) that we just mentioned. So we'll be back after the break. So we get asked the most random questions here at the Black Expat. Everything from who ships hair care products internationally to where can I find a solid expat tax professional? This is why we're soon launching a new resource called Buy While Abroad. It's a business directory to connect expats and travelers with the companies that deliver the products and services they need while they are abroad. So if you're a business owner and your business can cater to global nomads, especially a diverse clientele, you should visit buywhileabroad.com and share your email address. We will keep you posted when we go live and definitely tell you how you can join. Right. So we're going to pick back up um, from where the conversation went right before the break. And so obviously Audra just kind of walked us through sort of her travels in Africa. And then, you know, eventually she's she gets back to Hong Kong. <laughs> and so I, I, I want I'm curious. So after, you know, you start to have all these experiences traveling in Africa, the people you've met, you know, you're obviously still employed as a banker you know, or, or, or maybe you weren't, but I'm thinking like, at least you had a job <laughs> because you had to explain while you were gone and, and whatnot. So what, what was going on with you career wise, actually right. during that whole period? Right. So, um, doing, um, so I took career break, uh, to pursue my MBA full time. So the initial, uh, East Africa trip, I was still employed, but when I went back and was traveling in West Africa, I was then working for myself. So I took a career break. I, I pursued my MBA full time. So I studied full time here in Hong Kong. And again, I saw this random stranger on CNN on African Voices. I reached out to her and that's what inspired me to book a one-way flight to Ghana. And that's how I ended up spending the summer. Inter- I did a summer there for a um, summer internship. And um, during my, my trip across Africa, I met a girl in Ghana. And I met her. We were at this beautiful you know, garden party and I was chatting with her. And I said, I really love your dress. And she said, I own nothing black. And I said, what do you mean? She said, there's nothing black in my wardrobe, not a black shoe, not a black purse. There's absolutely nothing black. And then our conversation about our love for color, I started telling her how much I love color. And, but in banking, like all of my clothes were black or gray or navy. But outside of work, I was always very colorful. That conversation really inspired me. And I thought, why not merge my love of travel and fashion together and create resort with people who love color? So that was the initial idea of the brand. And again, I didn't study fashion, but I grew up around it. Like my mom worked in textile, like my aunt, like just, you know, lot of my family members and like I said my grandmother was a seamstress I've always had tailors in every single country that I've lived in like I just felt like it was important for me to adjust things and you know to you know to, to tailor make you know things that I I really love so that's where that inspiration came from so at that point I had set up a, um, a trading company I was doing a bit of trading between Asia and Africa um, so I didn't go back to banking so once I was done with my MBA I just thought you know what what can I do between Asia and Africa and that's when I registered my first company and I was doing a bit of that and that's what really inspired the initial trip across West Africa it was you know let me go there meet people on the continent who need someone in, on the ground in China 
not to help them with sourcing products and, you know, here on the ground. And that's the initial, um, you know, idea. But then when I met this girl, the idea just ch uh, changed into following my passion. Like I've always loved fashion. How do I create a brand, you know, based on my ideas? So again, came back to Hong Kong and went into the fabric market here. I just started feeling different fabric, just trying to figure out which direction I wanted to go. And went into China. Someone gave me a contact there and he said, uh, where are you? I got a, uh, to the factory and he said, where are you from? I said, I'm from the Caribbean. He said, I lived in the Caribbean. This is a Hong Kong Chinese guy who was running a factory and he totally helped me like, you know, realize the idea. Like I said to him, you know, I brought some fabric with me. I said, this is my idea. I'm looking to create a brand that's centered around color. But initially I wasn't focusing on sustainability like I thought you know what I wanted to keep the cost down because I was thinking of you know being able to reach a bit more um, of my target customers and I, I didn't think about all of the all of the, the fabric and you know all the different aspect of you know sustainability right but because of my sourcing days I met a girl someone connected me with a girl in South Africa and they reached out to me and said oh can you help us source machinery to deal with a textile waste problem in Africa so I knew there was a lot of waste because of fast fashion but I didn't realize how vast it was and how much it affected the African continent so that totally you know shifted my attention and I felt like, you know what, I've spent a lot of time on the African content. I stayed with these local family. I felt triggered by it. And I said, how do I make a difference? What can I do to make a difference? And that's why, you know, my brand focused on reducing textile waste and um, size inclusion. So you've said a lot. And I'm, I think I'm going to follow the thread on quite okay. a few of them. Okay. Um, and so here's, here's where Let's start with this. So you, obviously you had a background in banking. You went and got your MBA while living in Hong Kong. Obviously you set up your first business. As someone who's an entrepreneur myself, and I do have an MBA as well. Right. <laughs> this is not a, this is not a brag thing. This, yeah, is just yeah. a, this is just a point of contention. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> I say contention. That's a negative point. But right. this is just a point to be made. Right. It's really funny, like, mm -hmm. because I've talked to you offline. I've talked to you earlier. Mm -hmm. Is that even with all of that, right? You coming mm -hmm. from a finance background business degree, mm -hmm. all of that. Running a business yes. <laughs> is a completely different animal, animal right? Absolutely. Irrespective, Absolutely. even with all that knowledge, which you, you're like, y'all can't see because she's nodding yes. her head. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And especially as a solopreneur, right? Like I was doing everything right. by myself and I felt like I was spinning my wheels. I was doing a lot of research and, you know, I'll send an invoice and then nothing happens. Right. So I'm doing a lot of free research with people and I realized I needed to change my business model, whether I charge enough for so I know that they're serious about really sourcing these products or I need to, you know, figure out another market, figure out, you know, what else can I do to make this more lucrative and be able to, to be able to get consistent revenue. So that's what I was thinking, why I went back and said, okay, I'll take this break and, you know, kind of figure out what direction I'll go next, you know? Cause I, cause I, here's the thing. Cause I always talk to folks who are like, I want to start a business. And then I, th because I think also hearing your story, right. They're like, okay, she's in Hong Kong. Mm -hmm. She was in finance. She has to travel right. in Africa. She's been traveling all around the world. She is launching this fashion brand. And there's like a social mission to it with sustainability, mm -hmm. looking at mm -hmm. textiles and waste. And I'm thinking to myself, man, I already know she tired because, because there's so much work. I just it know that because especially when you're doing something new and in yes. your case, like many, many companies, but once again, it's different because you, you're doing it predominantly solo is you're doing it across continents yes. and across countries. Absolutely. Right. Because Absolutely. it's different yes. when you're doing something in your house, but it's yes. not that you're not doing it in your house, 
But right. you're involving folks across time zones and locations mm-hmm. and yes. and whatnot. And so how has it been? Just I, mm-hmm. obviously you're someone who's a connector. And yes. and we I haven't used this term a whole lot with you, but you definitely have a whole lot of cross-cultural competency because you're able to communicate with people of different backgrounds. But how is it trying to get this idea off the ground and sort of connecting with folks in different spaces to be able to kind of bring this vision to life? Right. A lot of people don't realize that, well, Prior to COVID, I spent a lot of my time in China. My friends in Hong Kong would say, are you still living in Hong Kong? Because I was spending so much time there, but I don't speak Mandarin. So I literally Mm. use translation apps to speak in English. And the apps, uh, I'll give them the phone and they speak in Chinese and it translates to English. And this is how we communicate. Like at the factory, like the initial factory I was working with, um, you know, the, the, the owner, he spoke English. Uh, but then I moved to another factory where they spoke no English at all. I had one girl who was learning uh, English and I was trying to help her with our homework. That was a whole nother story in, in the factories. <laughs> Just being there, but, you know, not speaking the language. But I felt like it was necessary for me to be on the ground, for me to feel the fabric, for me to really, you know, give them my my vision for the brand and see it come to life, it was important for me to be there. So I spent a majority of my time, especially, I don't know if you remember, we had a protest here in Hong Kong uh, for quite a bit of time. So I had a hard time getting oh, my Oh, we products. saw it. Yeah. We saw it. <laughs> I was like, you may have said this wasn't as small as that, sound, that comment made. It, no, we saw yes. it. <laughs> Very yes. aware. Yeah, so that definitely restricted my ability to get products in from China. So I had to cross the border almost every day. It's an hour and a half from my my, my place to the factory. So I literally was crossing back and forth. I was told, oh, maybe because your, your package contained black or white items and they're protest color. I said, I don't have any black items, but literally the, the customs would just block all my orders coming in. I literally had to go across the border, get my packages, repackage them and ship it out. So it was, like I said, a crazy journey, but I was doing it all by myself, like literally Literally, I built my website. I was doing social media. I'm designing. I'm, you know, dyeing the colors, figuring out every single aspect of the brand. I did it on my own, like <laughs> on my own. I mean, now I have a bit of help, but <laughs> girl. But... So, like, you know, I was gonna say on social media when people want to talk about hustle culture, and I'm just right. like, y'all don't know what you're talking about, right? right. You're like, you should be your own entrepreneur. Right. You can hustle. I'm like, right. no, no, no. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah, what you say on social media sounds sexy. What's not sexy is being up at two a.m trying right. to fight with the website or trying to get a product together. <laughs> now yes, this is just absolutely. me talking about my experience. Yes, yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> people are like, oh, yes. that looks so amazing. You must have right. a team. Nah, it's no. me. Yes, exactly. You learn, you learn so much as well, right? Yeah, you learn so much, yeah. especially when you have limited resources. I didn't go, I didn't go back to work. You know, I didn't go back to banking after my MBA and I went off traveling, right? So, you know, not having that consistent, you know, income coming in, that was a bit, you know, it, it, it allow it didn't allow me to hire a lot of people to help with different tasks, right? But now I know the importance of, you know, delegating and, you know, getting other people to help. So obviously I had some interns over the summer and, you know, I have like other the people who are, you know, helping with different aspects of the business. But, you know, for a long time, it was just me dealing with doing pop-ups and, you know, just the whole customer experience. Because that's one of the parts that I really enjoy, like getting the feedback from the customers and being able to serve uh, those customers. So, like I said, I wore so many different hats, but I enjoyed every single aspect of the business. Like, there wasn't anything that I hated to do. Like, you know, I really enjoyed what I was doing and I felt like this is what I, this is my calling, right? Because especially, I think my motivation behind a brand, when I learned 
learn about how much waste is dumped there in, in Africa because, again, because I love the continent so much. And I said, I have to do something about it. So I've decided. So the brand is focused on, you know, it's centered around color, but it's it's size mm-hmm. and height inclusive. You, you come across brands that are size inclusive, inclusive, but you don't find too many brands that are size and height inclusive. So I do petite for someone five feet, short is five, four, regular is five, eight and tall is six feet. And if you're in between, you know, I can customize the sizes as well. Right. Because I want women of all sizes to feel confident in color. But most importantly, the pieces are adjustable. So, you know, they will last for a long time. So instead of, you know, designing where the, the, the premise is to design to keep the pieces out of the landfill. So for you to for it to last in your wardrobe as long as possible. So it, you're not just, you know, having waste, you know. So this was this was the idea behind the brand. So I got traction really, really quickly. I got selected for New York Fashion Week. Then I showcased in Ghana, um, you know, for um, a Fashion Connect Africa. That was for the year of return. Came back to Hong Kong and then COVID hit. And then that changed everything. Like, <laughs> So, because I, I, I don't want to get off this point because this is yes. a very big piece to the work that you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, for folks who don't know, because they're, they're folks who probably are hearing you saying in terms about textile waste, particularly mm-hmm. in Africa, can you right. kind of walk through a little bit what's yes. been happening traditionally, or at least what is currently happening? Happening, yes. So uh, there's a lot, a lot of people don't realize, you think that you donate your clothing and it goes to people who need it. But a lot of people don't realize like a lot of the clothing you donate or even, you know, clothing that's, um, you know, overproduction that's done by, you know, whether it's fast fashion brands or just brands in general that's just overproducing, this clothes gets sold in bales and it most of it end up in the landfills of Africa. So it's a huge problem, like a huge, huge problem. Um, you know, Ghana has one of the largest, you know, secondhand, you know, trading market, um, Continental, I think it's called, um, where, you know, a lot of people don't realize, like, you know, there's, you know, a lot of narrative around, you know, zero waste, right? But for me, when you're designing with no seam allowance because it's your it's zero waste, I find it's zero waste because it's saving the, the brand money, right? You're not wasting the fabric, right? But if you design with extra seam allowance, those pieces, if you gain weight, you can open it. Now, well, I haven't announced yet, but all of our new skirts before, like I have, you know, mommy and me. So the kids' pieces, I, I, I designed with adjustable elastic. I don't know if you're familiar with the ones with the buttonholes. So as the kids grow, you will open. So now that's a new offer that we have for adults as well. So whether you're in between size or you gain or lose weight, you can actually just open the elastic and, and, and pull it and then, you know, button the elastic. And also sometimes you're wearing flats or you're wearing, you know, heels. You want the skirt mm-hmm. to fall higher or lower. So having, yeah, having that adjustable elastic gives you the ability to adjust the sizes. And that's one of the things that I customize. Again, this is not something that I've invented. It's been around for a long time. But brands want you to overconsume, and my my um, message is to buy less, buy better quality, buy products that are made for you, and that's why I mostly do made to order. So within two weeks, I can make your size and your length. So you choose the colors that work for your skin tone, what length you prefer, whether you want a mini, a midi, a maxi, whatever works for you. And within two weeks, I can produce your size. So this is this is my um, mission, you know, to reduce waste and to keep the pieces out of the landfills. So. <laughs> And here's the thing, like what you're saying resonates with me, just seeing how we used to buy clothes mm-hmm. in Cameroon, right? And I'm sure yes. in the crib, I mean, obviously you had the grandmother who was a seamstress, you know, we. Mm-hmm. this is why tailors are amazing, right? Because yes. you go, they get you what you, you, you what you want is what they right. create. Exactly. And, and, <laughs> and it, it is, it is made to order and it is yes. what it is. And it's, it's really awesome because I feel like you're really incorporating mm-hmm. that experience, but also you're right. Like there's nothing worse than buying a piece. You look mm-hmm. good in it. You feel good right. in it. 
And then mm-hmm. either through your body changes or quite frankly, the way it gets washed and handled and all right. of a sudden you can't fit into it anymore. It's sort of like, and then then you've lost that piece because I'm thinking of something right now that's hanging in my closet right. where <laughs> it got washed a certain way. And now mm-hmm. it's like, well, it was good for those couple of wears, but now right. I can't fit into right. it. <laughs> Exactly. My weight exactly. did not change. I would like to say that point. My weight did <laughs> yeah. not change. It was the washing yes. cycle. Right. No, I, I totally understand. But even like I said, coming out of COVID, right? So many people have lost and gained weight. Like, you know, so again, mm-hmm. so instead of you having to discard the pieces and get new new clothing, you have a piece that you can just adjust it and it it lasts for a long time. So I, I feel like, you know, there's so much, you know, um, narrative around, you know, like the the, the text, the, um, the fabric and all that stuff. Like I said, one of the, the, mission for the brand is to create clothing that evokes joy, but also to divert mm-hmm. it from the landfills of Africa, right? So obviously, um, you know, with, with with the brighter colors, there isn't any natural dye yet that will dye the pieces that doesn't bleed, right? So, you know, there isn't, um, so but what I do is that the, the, the prints are done by digital printing. So that's less water and energy waste by doing digital printing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, having the piece lasting for a long time in a specific person's wardrobe or, you know, something that evokes joy where you don't want to just discard it. That's one way of reducing the waste and, you know, keeping the pieces out of the landfill. So I feel like, you know, you know, there's so many people who are, you know, have their own, you know, their own um, interpretation of sustainability. But again, you know, it's important for us to address the problem. And the problem is overconsumption and making pieces, you know, adjustable just so that, you know, it will last for a long time and you, you avoid them going to the landfill. So this is my mission. And um, I, I am, you know, really grateful that I, I, I am working on it. And like I said, I'm still researching other options in terms of getting the, the brighter colors, um, you know, to be dyed, you know, naturally mm-hmm. or, you know, obviously um, a solution. There isn't anything obviously like, you know, using um, trees and like all these different things that are used for natural dyes. You just don't have anything. Right. So I found I came across a company recently that's doing like some sort of digital uh, way of, um, of, of printing on uh, colors. So I, I literally mm-hmm. just reached out to the CEO saying, OK, can we discuss what this entails. So again, I'm still finding a solution, but it's important for people to start where you are. I feel like a lot of um, emerging designers get discouraged because you have a lot of people who will nitpick say, oh, it's not sustainable because of this or because of that. Mm -hmm. But I am solving a specific problem. And the problem is keeping the pieces out of the landfill and having those pieces, you know, last for a longer time. So that's where I'm starting. And like I said, if if, a fast fashion brand can win sustainability awards, we need to, you know, encourage other emerging designers to start where they are and, you know, to do the things that they they think is necessary to, um, you know, care for the planet. So we're taking small steps. So, yeah. <laughs> I think you highlighted, obviously, some of, some of the challenges you, you have faced in terms of, obviously, there was a geopolitical situation that was going mm-hmm. on. And then obviously COVID, which we're still trying to really kind of emerge from. And then even developing a product that is safe for the environment and is also mm-hmm. just sustainable mm-hmm. in terms of when we look right. at resources. Mm-hmm. So as a, at this point, you're essentially, I mean, not essentially, you are a full-time entrepreneur. Yes. And so 
I always like to have a little bit of that for those who come from that background, for the people who are listening in, then Mm -hmm. how have you been able, like, obviously you, cause you left your job in banking, right? So, so has it just been, look, Audra has hustled and sold and, and, and consulted and coached or got grants. How have you been able to sort of sustain, especially honestly during COVID, which everything just kind of stopped. Yes. Yeah. So, so one of the things that I haven't mentioned is that during COVID, I lost everything. Like I had to start from zero. I um, I had used a new factory right before COVID, and because um, I was traveling, I had like a, a large order that needed to be done. I bought you know 800 meters of fabric, 500 meters I left with them, and again, you know, a lot of the factories were closed and all of that stuff. But I kept in touch with them the entire time. And then when things started getting back to normal in Hong Kong, we had you know zero new cases for like 30 days, and you know, so at that point, I thought let's resume operation because I wasn't really worried because I don't have a lot of inventory. The business model is not to keep inventory; it's to have a few pieces of samples, and then I will make to order. So for years, you know, prior to COVID, obviously I launched a brand in 2018. I've been saying this for a long time, like you're buying, you're producing too much. This is a problem, right? And so even your favorite, you know, charity brands that's using recycled fabric, like when COVID hit, you know, I'm getting emails that, oh, we're discounting our inventory. Again, I didn't have that problem. So I felt like let's just wait. And then when things get, and then customers started reaching out, oh, we're moving. We would love to get some colorful clothing before we go. Like, so these are the things that made me realize, like, I have to keep going because customers are not reaching out. And as long as I have fabric on hand, I can produce, right? And then that's when I launched, I learned that the fabric, the factory had stolen all of my fabric, like everything, like 500 meters of it all gone. But because I was so determined, because I'm so passionate about what I do, like giving up wasn't an option, like literally, like I rented out my bedrooms. I'm just like, how do I keep my head above water and to be able to have enough runway to keep going? You know, so that's literally like I was reducing expenses, whatever. Like I have, um, you know, a friend, I got a small contract um, doing some compliance work. So again, so whatever it took to at least give me a little bit of income while I work on rebuilding the brand, you know, that's what I did. So um, I'm now at the point now where I do have fabric on hand now. Um, I face some challenges with production because a lot of the small factories closed down. Once a lot of the international orders started, you know, canceling, a lot of them couldn't pay their workers. A lot of the small factories um, closed down. So now I've hired, um, you know, someone to help with sewing at the sample room so that I can continue with the same model of, you know, um, you know, doing pre-orders versus having, you know, a lot of mass producing, right? So, so that's been, like I said, it's been a challenging journey, but, you know, I, I definitely felt like, you know, I wouldn't change anything. Like, obviously I wish that my fabric wasn't stolen, but, you know, I learned a lot from it and I leveraged my network to be able to get started again. And again, the borders are still closed between Hong Kong and China. So it would have been much easier for me to go back in and, you know, be able to, you know, find new factories and all that stuff. But I literally did everything by leveraging my network and reaching out to the people who I know who are on the ground. And I've been fortunate enough to have people there who are really helping me along the way. So, um, so I'm very, very for that. Thank you for being transparent because I think sometimes yeah. <laughs> it's difficult for folks to actually share, okay, this is the really rough stuff that's been yes. going on. <laughs> and I and I knew I knew that you had faced some really interesting mm-hmm. challenges. Mm-hmm. And and so, you know, as we kind of sort of wrap up here, one of the mm-hmm. things I, I am curious about is that obviously you are a traveler, you live in the States, you mm-hmm. live in the Caribbean, you're now in Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Is for you right now, Hong Kong, the place you, you see yourself being for, for a minute or, and I'm saying a minute because you've already <laughs> been there a decade, <laughs> Yes, and, <laughs> right? Or do you see yourself 
you know, heading out to somewhere different in the, in the next right. couple of years? So I am still in love with Hong Kong. I am also in love with the African continent. I, I definitely think Hong Kong is still my place. And especially with my business, um, I need to be close to China. I need to be able to, you know, keep things going and, you know, be able to realize this vision, right? Uh, but in a few years, my goal is to split my time between Hong Kong and a few places I love in Africa. So, um, you know, so I'm definitely, you know, taking steps towards that. Uh, but I, I don't see myself moving back to the U.S. ever. Like, I keep saying that. <laughs> But I really love Hong Kong. And, you know, from here, I would I would think, you know, splitting my time between a few places I really love. Like I love Ghana. Um, Namibia is one of those countries that I really love um, as well, based on the people I met there and just my experience as well. So there are so many places, Gambia as well, that I really, really love. So there are places I would love to split my time between on the continent. And then, like I said, I have another half of the continent to explore as well. So um, mm-hmm. this is my, um, my, my, my plan in terms of, you know, when I don't think I'll ever leave Hong Kong, like, you know, I think this is my place. I'll always, it probably will always be a hub for me, uh, but I will definitely spend more time in, on the continent um, in the few years. <laughs> I think I figured you would eventually probably get a house somewhere other <laughs> yes. on the continent. <laughs> Absolutely. Your, your, your love is your love for it is definitely infectious and contagious but it is. oh my goodness thank you so much for making this happen I know that we went back and forth but I like because people can't see you right now I'm like I, I should describe she's got a beautiful bright dress on and which is uh-huh. clearly indicative of the work that she's doing so I'm like she's selling the dress and she's just sitting uh-huh. down but but <laughs> I you. appreciate you just coming on and telling a little bit about your story because I I, I think that your brand is obviously amazing now but I think it's going to be really amazing as you go forward Thank you so much. And thank you so much for having me. And thanks for the work that you're doing to showcase Black expats around the world. (laughs) I'm trying. Well, well, you know, if I hit every single, well, if I hit every single one, I I guess I have billions, millions of people. But anyway, so we will have, as we do with everyone else, we will have Audra's information available in the show notes, as well as on the Black Expat website. She has got a great offer, which if you tap into our newsletter, you can definitely see the information. I may put it on the website, but I know for sure it'll be in the newsletter. So make sure you sign up for that. But until next time, thank you for listening to the Global Chatter. Thank you. (laughs) You just heard an episode of the Global Chatter podcast, a project by the Black Expat. It's hosted by me, Amanda Bates, and it's edited by Stephanie Fuccio. To learn more about this podcast or to learn more about the Black Expat, visit theblackexpat.com. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. 
that crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.